One of my, my children, my oldest, at a young age, uh, had a harmless but annoying way of getting attention. I'd be standing talking with someone, like many of you have been doing already this morning, and uh, my eight-year-old would suddenly be tapping me on the, fo- the, the shoulder like a confused woodpecker um, and saying, Dad, 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 as if whispering were somehow going to be less disruptive. <laughs> he was a living pop-up ad. And his mother and I had to train him to wait patiently and listen to what was being said so that he would know when it's appropriate to ask his question. Well, he outgrew that habit. But kids who never outgrew it are making a living in marketing. (laughs) Advertisers demand more and more attention. What began as a 10-second jingle during a baseball broadcast has turned into 20 minutes of advertising for every hour of television. If you uh, want to watch a two-minute YouTube video, you've got to watch a 30-second commercial first, right? If you purchase a phone, you're going to get ads by text before you hear from any family and friends. It's only a matter of time before we have the technology to tap you annoyingly on the shoulder. And these ads aren't innocent. They claim to know what you need and where you can get it. And they say it so well that millions of people give them money for products that cannot deliver what the ads portray. Uh, We drive the cars, but the roads never look as beautiful as the ones in the ads. We, We drink the beverages, but they don't make us happy as the people in the ads. We Uh, use their deodorant, but we don't have supermodels hanging on us. (laughs) Saturated with all these unfulfilled promises, we tend to be skeptical about what the Bible says. You're only selling one more product that doesn't really deliver what it claims, we think. And I sympathize with that feeling, but when I study the Bible, my reaction is the very opposite. Anyone who wants to sell me the wealth and the love and the control that I crave would not have come as a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth who talked a lot about dying and then got himself crucified. If the Bible's trying to sell me something, it does it all wrong. People who make up stories don't make up this kind of a story. In in fact, people who want to make the Bible sound attractive have to find ways of hiding the disturbing parts. We try to twist the story to fit our own understanding with which we will be comfortable, so we distort the good news. And John's gospel was written to correct that kind of distortion. The other three gospels were well-known already at the time that John was written. But people were distorting the truth about Jesus. Some people, early on, argued that Jesus was God, yes, but he couldn't have been really a man. This may sound opposite to a Western worldview today, but that's what people were thinking at the time. God could not get his hands dirty with creation. So they said Jesus was a kind of avatar. He was a virtual man for communicating with people. He wouldn't wouldn't be so concerned about sin. His death would be merely symbolic, not a real death. And there are some who think this way today, that God would not directly be involved with people because we're too fallen. Others argue that Jesus was human, but he wasn't God. Jesus had a higher knowledge of God, but Jesus was no more than a man. So God didn't really die in our place. Jesus is merely an example of virtuous living, 
a saint to bring us luck. He's a picture to hang on the wall, but he's not the living Lord. And neither group was denying the historical events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Too many people had known Jesus to deny him, but they were twisting the story to fit their way of thinking. And the Jesus that they described would not be the Savior and Lord who can actually give eternal life. So John wrote this fourth gospel, not to correct the other three, but to further explain the truth of Jesus, whom these two philosophies misunderstood. And like Matthew and Mark and Luke, John shows Jesus to be the gospel in the flesh, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. In fact, John states his purpose very clearly in chapter 20, verse 31, when he says, and I'll come back to this later, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I'm going to point out four things that are on the very simple outline that you've, uh, you have printed, I believe, this morning. And the first of these is that Jesus, according to John's gospel, is the Lord God. John shows us the, the true nature of Jesus, his relation to the Old Testament, and his focus on people. Uh, first of all, the gospel depends on the true nature of Jesus. Thanks at least partly to the philosopher Plato, when Greeks used the term God, they meant an ideal. They meant an eternal goodness and rightness. And the term Lord, uh, not necessarily related to God, meant someone who's in a position of ultimate authority over his domain. But many thought this world is so corrupt, God must have shunned it a long time ago. He turned his back on this world. And people in John's culture had a hard time understanding that God is capable of getting his hands dirty without the dirtiness overcoming God. We in our culture have, I think, a similar difficulty. We can't reconcile the brokenness of this world to the goodness of God. And because we can't reconcile this world to God, we imagine God can't do that either. Or we say that Jesus may have forgiven other people, but my sin is so bad I don't see him forgiving me. I don't feel forgiven. We think God is limited. Jesus is God's way of reconciling the world to God, and John shows us both God's willingness to get his hands dirty and his eagerness to extend forgiveness to every person who will receive it. John's also Jewish, and he knows that the God who revealed himself in Jewish history is the same God who came in the flesh. So John brings together the Hebrew scripture that God is the creator with the Greek idea that God is the word, the source of all meaning, the source of all wisdom and knowledge. And the Hebrew Bible begins with the words, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Genesis 1 goes on to show that God creates by his word, by speaking to the world and bringing it meaningfully into existence. So John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the word. He's speaking to this Greek audience, right? And the word was with God and the word was God. That's the first verse of the gospel. Man knows of God because of meaning in the created world. Before everything else, meaning was eternal. 
And meaning was with God, and meaning was God's meaning. In the first five verses, John tells us that he, the meaning, made all things. Life comes from him, and his life is the light by which people can see and understand and begin to make sense of the world. Even though this world is clouded in darkness, the darkness can't control the light. The darkness is not sovereign. John's arguing with this mentality that God couldn't couldn't, uh, interact with his creation. The darkness is not the final word, John says. The darkness is not too much for the light to overcome. Jesus is God in the Greek sense of transcendent ideal truth, John says, and Jesus is Lord in the Hebrew sense of the unique sovereign creator over all creation. John corrects bad thinking. He says, starting in verse 14, that the eternal meaning became flesh. The word took on a human form and he lived as one of us and the creator became a creature. And John says, we've seen his glory up close and personal. The Greeks would think of glory as something wonderful beyond what the world has ever seen. The Hebrews would think of glory as the awesome presence of God who spoke from the mountain and filled the tabernacle and dwelt in the midst of their camp from Exodus. And John says, Moses gave the law so that we can know about God, but we have seen God's grace and truth firsthand. Grace and truth in both Hebrew and Greek thinking are divine ideals. These are things that come from the heavenly realm. They're characteristics of eternal God. And John says, we've seen them brought to life in Jesus. And Jesus proves to be, John shows us, the Old Testament God. John intentionally ties Jesus back to the God of the Older Testament. The first half of John's gospel makes these opening verses really come alive. In verse 29, John the baptizer calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Lamb that takes away sin was the Lamb slain during Passover to mark God's people for salvation rather than for condemnation, way back in the the Egypt story. Jesus is the fulfillment of that story from Exodus. In chapter 2, when Jesus turns water into wine to grace a needy family hosting a wedding, John calls it the first of Jesus' signs by which he demonstrated his glory. And both signs and glory are Old Testament terms. God revealed himself to the Hebrew people by great signs, and God lived in their midst as the glory that filled the temple. Jesus is that God whom they have known in their midst. And Jesus claimed authority over the temple. People asked what sign he would give for that kind of authority. And Jesus says, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's talking about his own resurrection, which proves him to be the Lord over the temple. Chapter 4. When the Samaritan woman asks Jesus what mountain is the right place to meet God, she's echoing the story from Exodus in which Moses met the Lord on the mountain and received the word. But Jesus says that because of his coming, it's not about a mountain, but it's about spirit and truth. It's about God and his word. And Jesus tells the disciples that he sent them to reap a harvest that they did not plant. He's echoing Deuteronomy 6 in which the Lord tells his people not to forget that he is giving them cities they didn't build and wells they didn't dig and vineyards they didn't plant. Jesus is claiming to have been working for this spiritual harvest long before any of them were chosen to participate in and enjoy it. He's claiming to be their God. 
In chapter 5, Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because Moses wrote about me. In chapter 6, Jesus claims to be the God who taught the prophets. And in most of chapter 6 is Jesus claimed to be the bread of heaven symbolized by the manna that God gave to sustain his people in the wilderness. In chapter 7, during the Feast of Tabernacles, which commemorates the years in which they lived in that wilderness, Jesus says, whoever trusts me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water as the scripture is described. He's claiming to be the Lord who gave water in the wilderness. And when he claims to be the light of the world in chapter 8, he's, he's recalling the pillar of fire that led people in the wilderness. He's claiming to be the source of truth that sets his people free from the slaves they were. And when people ask how he could know Abraham, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, referring to himself by the name of God. And Thomas, upon meeting the risen Jesus, calls him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 don't get carried away, Thomas. He says, you're blessed because you believe. The message of Christmas is that God has met us in the flesh. Okay, if Jesus is the Old Testament God, what about those claims that Jesus was not an actual man? Well, John addresses that too. He begins his gospel by telling us the Word became flesh, and Thomas has to verify that the risen Jesus has scars on a body in chapter 20. And John ends his gospel with the risen Jesus fixing breakfast for the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, chapter 21. And not only was Jesus a material, physical man, but as God in the flesh, he loved people personally, practically, individually. The Greeks said God would not have contact with material people, but John's response is, you don't know God. Let me tell you what he's really like. Let me show you how God in the flesh treated people. I heard of an African exchange student who went to his... uh, pastor of an American church and asked if he could take a photo of him with the church on his last Sunday there. And the pastor said, sure, meet me after the service. And when the service was over and the people left, the pastor said, okay, are you ready to take that photo? And the the African student said, the church has left. Now, the pastor was thinking of a building and the African was rightly thinking of the people. In Jesus, God showed that he's interested in the people. There was a young couple that lived some distance from the university to which uh, uh, he rode, this young man rode uh, a bus every morning for his studies. And one day as he was leaving, he said to his wife, I'm going to immerse myself in creation today. And thinking that he was skipping class to waste time in the great outdoors, his wife said, do you think you can afford to skip class? He said, I'm not going to skip class. And she said, all right, what's all this about immersing yourself in creation, and he said, I ride the bus with 40 people. What's more thick with creation than those people? And she said, well, I never thought of that. He said, you mean you never read Genesis? In Jesus, the creator showed that people are at the heart of his purposes in the world. In Jesus, God shows his commitment to the salvation of real people. The the old Peanuts cartoon strip had one of the characters, Linus, say, I love mankind. It's people that I can't stand. (laughs) And I think we can relate, right? People in our culture seem to think that way. We we care about humanity. We get really angry with individual people. 
most of John's gospel is a string of conversations that God in the flesh had with real people like you and me. That's why I encourage people who are just exploring uh, the Bible to start there. If God comes into contact with fallen people, their darkness does not overcome his light. He overcomes their darkness. He's the one who's Lord. In Jesus, God shows his commitment to the salvation of real people. Second thing I would point out from this gospel is that Jesus is the Savior King. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the true Son of God, the same God who revealed himself in the Old Testament. He is also the Christ. Christ is the Greek term Messiah. Uh, Messiah is the Hebrew term. It means anointed. An anointed one was a person to whom God gave the honor and the responsibility and the authority to bridge the gap between people and God. And the Christ, uh, the one who was so chosen, would be a successor to King David. Isaiah 9 says his kingdom is eternal, Daniel chapter 7 says, and he would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, Micah has said. And when Jesus came, many cultures were hoping for a Christ. It wasn't limited just to Hebrews. Many cultures wanted a universal ruler who would bring the whole world into its golden age. The Jews were hoping for a Messiah to save them once and for all from the oppression of people like the Egyptians and the Philistines and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and now the Romans. And so in John chapter 1, when Andrew tells Peter, we have found the Messiah, he's saying Jesus comes with very unique qualifications for a big role in the story. And when Nathanael asked if Christ could come from a place like Nazareth, Philip says, you have to meet him for yourself. Jesus told the Samaritan woman that he is that Messiah. He told people at the Feast of Tabernacles that he is their true liberator. If Jesus, the Savior of the world, uh, is he what so many were hoping for, John shows us a Savior who's not only what we think we need, he's what we really need. We hope for a Savior who will merely improve the economy. Jesus is a Savior who transforms lives. He's committed to save us into eternal life, and He's uniquely qualified to do it. He makes it His business to overcome our darkness with His light. In chapter 3, Jesus explains spiritual birth to Nicodemus. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he He can't have the kingdom of God. Nicodemus would have understood kingdom to mean the domain of the Messiah. To be included in his kingdom, Jesus says, you must be born of his spirit. His kingdom isn't like a worldly kingdom, chapter 18 says. He he says in chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it in abundance. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus doesn't merely overcome other kingdoms. He overcomes death itself. Just before raising the dead Lazarus, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever trusts me will live even if he dies. And whoever lives and trusts me will never die. Chapter 11. He said the Son of God has authority to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. And eternal life is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 17. And his authority... To save is in no way inferior to worldly kingdoms. Jesus told the Roman governor, you would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. At his own trial in chapter 19. 
We're uncomfortable with people who claim authority over us. We're not sure we want anyone to be king of eternity and lord over us forever. But John is showing that it's because Jesus is the ideal king that he has eternal authority. That we can count on him to be our eternal savior. Jesus told Nicodemus what we don't realize. You're condemned already because you resist the life giver. So God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't needed. But to save the world through him. Eugene Peterson writes about visiting Yellowstone Park with his children, and and, uh, uh, he he passed away just a couple of weeks ago. Um, But I I remember him writing this story that they marveled at the the majesty and the beauty of this protected wilderness, and he taught them well the Sierra Club doctrine, leave nothing but footprints and take nothing but pictures. (laughs) And as he walked with his children along one particularly colorful path, he saw a little girl, maybe five or six years old. She's got a fistful of wildflowers. And he suddenly realized she's picking them as she walks along the path. And almost on instinct, uh, he, he yelled out, don't pick the flowers. And the startled little girl immediately dropped the flowers and burst into tears. And he said uh, his own children instantly were down his throat. This insensitive father, Dad, how could you do that to her? You may have scarred her for life. She's as important as flowers are. And he confessed, they're they're right, of course. The creator of all this glory is also the creator of this little girl. And to dishonor her is to dishonor him. Of all the evil in the world, the most rampant is our desecration of human relationships. The relationship with God and then with each other. But that's where the Savior King is so surprising to us. He doesn't despise people. It's the people, his own creations, who despise him. Again and again, John shows us Jesus calling people to himself. In Jesus, God shows his commitment to the salvation of real people. He doesn't come as a destroyer. He comes as a life giver. Third thing. To point out that verse in chapter 20, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. I was waiting to get a haircut and was thumbing through a sports magazine and came to one of those question-answer columns in which people ask the columnist's perspective on various developments in sports. And most of the questions are about this team's prospects or that coach's future, but one question kind of struck me as out of place. The person asked, why do so many athletes call attention to God? How can people in this day and age believe in God? And uh, the columnist, a known broadcaster, gave a surprising answer. He said, as I remember it, he said, wait until you have a child of your own. Uh, You can't hold a newborn baby and not believe in God. That's an interesting thing to read in ESPN magazine. I think what he meant is that it's hard to be hit with the indescribable wonder of holding this amazing new life in your hands and feel the intense and fearful parental love while believing that the universe is impersonal and meaningless. You know, those, those two things just don't go together. For me, the fearful love has only increased as my children have become adults. 
that few things in life have caused me the grief and the desperate prayer that my children have cost me, and for no one would I sacrifice so much out of love. John has showed us the God of the Old Testament loves people that way. He wants us to know he's a father. He has demonstrated it by coming in the person of Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He's the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him, he says in chapter 14. How then do we receive him? We do it by trusting him, entering into a living relationship. It's not about what we do for him. Some of you have read the book With that's on the back table. I highly recommend it. It's about being with him. He he said, apart from me, you can do nothing in chapter 15. It's about trusting what he has done and will do to save us. In Jesus, God shows his commitment to the salvation of real people. In chapter 1, we learn that he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. God has come in the flesh and we don't care. But to all who did receive him, who trust his character, he gave the right to become children of God born of God. God has come in person so we can trust him personally. I had a student tell me just Friday evening, um, he said, when I first was trying to understand how to trust God, I asked him, show yourself to me and speak to me. And I began to find out that he was doing that through other people. And he kept putting people in my path that were answering my request. So finally, why does, what, what does Jesus say to those who are struggling? If, if we're struggling with how to respond to him, and I do, we need to listen to what Jesus says after he rose from death. John records five very basic statements which Jesus made after he had died and then risen again. Uh, the first of those in chapter 20 Why are you weeping? Uh, The risen Jesus meets Mary Magdalene in the garden. Another woman in a garden long before had made a choice to disbelieve God and it brought the world of suffering that we know. But this is a new beginning. And Mary, still grieving over her crucified friend, doesn't recognize him. But as far as we know, the very first words Jesus spoke after rising were to her. Why are you weeping? And he says them so gently, a simple question. But of course, the answer is that if he's alive, that changes the whole picture. So he asks us as well, why are you weeping? The second is uh, his statement, peace be with you. This, This one really hits me. The disciples are meeting behind locked doors. They're fearing the same people who had killed Jesus. But Jesus comes because no lock is a barrier for him. And he says, peace be with you. He's not wishing, he's creating as he always has by speaking his word. In Hebrew thinking, peace meant be fulfilled. Jesus says we're fulfilled because he has given us his spirit. He sends us out with the blessing of forgiveness. He has paid our debt to God. It no longer stands between us. We have peace because of him. And when I think of how All his closest friends ran and hid and deserted him and denied him and betrayed him. We would expect anger when he rose from the the dead. And instead he says, peace. And the third, still in chapter 20, is the words, 
trust me. Thomas wasn't with the other disciples, so he doesn't believe that Jesus is actually risen. And so eight days later, when they're all together, again behind locked doors, Jesus is suddenly there among them, and he tells Thomas to look at his scars, to touch him. He's showing the physicality, the reality, the presence, and he says, stop doubting and trust me. His fourth statement comes in chapter 21. Peter and some of the others had gone back home 80 miles north to Galilee where they had first met Jesus. They're back in their old jobs fishing. It appears they don't know what to do now, so they've just gone back to what they did before, their old lives. And Peter has some personal reasons for feeling his calling is over. He denied and abandoned Jesus at the most crucial time. But Jesus calls out to these men in their boat from the shore, and when they get there, he's cooking breakfast for them. He asks Peter three times, do you love me? And when Peter insists that he does, Jesus says, feed my sheep. Peter's unfaithfulness has not disqualified him from caring for other people. And then finally, the words, follow me. In 21, Peter had claimed that he would lay down his life for Jesus, and now Jesus tells him that you are in the end going to lay down your life, Peter. You're going to be put to death for me. And perhaps wanting to show that he's not thinking only of himself, Peter asks Jesus what's in store for John. And Jesus answers, what's that to you? Follow me. Caring for others is not about having their destiny in your control. It's about trusting the Savior, the Lord, and following Him in faith. So the risen Jesus comes, as He always did, very personally and very relationally. He doesn't threaten. He doesn't chew them out and and bark orders. He speaks the truth that they really need. He tells the grieving not to weep. Uh, He tells the fearful they can have peace. He tells the doubting to trust Him. He tells the sidelines to continue to minister To others, he tells the distracted to follow him. So this God, the same one who called Abraham and delivered slaves out of Egypt and provided food and water in the wilderness and spoke to Moses on the mountain and gave promises through prophets, has now come in the flesh and died in our place, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And along the way, before and after his death, he has spoken time and again to ordinary people calmly telling them to trust him and follow. Let's take another moment of prayer and just, just take a few seconds to, again, open your heart very honestly to him.